Hey, welcome back to the Top Pros Podcast, where we actually unlock the shocking secrets of the top 1% in real estate. I'm your host, Sean Channels, and I'm excited to bring you the insights and the inspirations from some of the most successful real estate professionals throughout the United States. Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome back to the uh, Top Producers Podcast. I just want to introduce a great friend of mine, uh, one of the most powerful agents in the area right now. Um, he's actually not working in one market, but working in two markets, and he was smart enough to recognize where his feeder market was from. Uh, so this podcast, really what we're doing is we're talking about the you know unlocking the secret strategies of the top producers and also talking to the consumer and saying, here's why you should go find Andre and work with him directly. Um, there's plenty of agents out there, but there's only a handful of them. And I would say it's the 1% of one is what I like to call it, that actually play at this level and actually get it um, where service is first and foremost, and how to, you know, how to put that together where, Andre, I'm going to bring you right in because I want you to, I want you to share the story of, you said, you said, hey, Sean, in the green room, you said, hey, I'm an agent in both markets. Um, so tell me more about that and tell the audience, you're on mute right now, by the way. Yeah, thanks, Sean, for having me. So I, I actually got into the business about three years ago, um, right around the pandemic, and I felt that there was a need for me as an agent to kind of build my business from the ground up. And the best way to do that was to maximize my potential as far as where I could be an agent. So ultimately, what I found was that the buyers that were coming in were ultimately also looking to sell in certain locations, whether it was North Jersey, whether, whether it was Queens all that sort of stuff. So what I did was about a year and a half into the business, I decided to get my New York license and focus also not only on New Jersey, but also New York. So I'm also licensed. So because this is going out to all 50 states, um, we have agents all over the world actually listening to this. Let's let's drill down a little bit. You you live in a, in a market in a beach town, mid uh, South Jersey is what I would call it mid Jersey, believe it or not, uh, in the middle of middle of South Jersey by the beach, one of my favorite places. That town is called Spring Lake, Spring uh, the Lake. Irish Riviera. The Irish Riviera. Yep. Yes. So we are um, a beach town. We thrive off our seasonal rentals. We thrive off of our tourism. Um, it's a great beach town. It's very quiet. It's very driven to the uh, areas around there are very sort of differentiated by different towns. So we have, you know, Bradley Beach, you have Asbury Park, you have all these towns offer sort of different things and come in as a culmination of just um, uniqueness and they offer different strategies and characteristics for each person. So there's sort of a buyer for every market over there. So route 71 to the beach, to the ocean is basically in English is if we wanted to tell people that. Um, and, you know, just so, so people are aware of it, um, like, you know, uh, where Andre is, is about an hour and a half, maybe an hour and 15 minutes from my house in North Jersey. Um, and people like myself, my brother actually has a place in Spring Lake. He also, he lives in Asbury Park now. But for many years, he would commute from, he had a place in New York City that he would work Monday to Friday and stay there. And it was like basically a closet. And then he would commute down to uh, Asbury Park on the weekends. And I think now he actually got rid of the place there and takes the high-speed ferry. Um, So you said something interesting a minute ago. You said, hey, during the pandemic, I recognized. And one of the things I wanted to kind of talk about real quick is, you know, during the pandemic, um, you know, I'm going to back up about a half a step. So when um, in 2007, eight, nine, I actually sold my company, which I own the Christie's Great Estates affiliate in Hudson County. And I sold that company to a big yellow company in New Jersey. Um, And when I moved to that company, 
um, I was doing stuff like on Skype where I was doing interviews with people in Germany and Switzerland and pre-interviewing the buyer before they came and showing them property so that when they showed up, I only had to take them out for like an hour and a half to show a international buyer houses because they knew exactly what they were going to buy. And at the time when I was doing that, the vast majority of the agents that were in the office, including the guy who owned the big yellow company's son, who was running the company now said, oh my God, what is he doing? Witchcraft? Like, is that voodoo or what? And I go, no, it's what they call Skype. And we can actually communicate and we talk and I send documents back and forth. And, and that was like, back then that was like, oh my God. And the world, you know, I would say like guys like my brother swore that they could not work anyplace else except at their desk on Wall Street. And then the, all of a sudden we had the pandemic who, you know, people say, oh my God, it was devastating. And some people will say, well, there's a lot of good things that came out of it. I think one of the interesting things that came out of it is one is people like yourself who said, hey, there's people that are work, working and living at home and they realize that they can work at home most of the time and only have to go to the city a couple of times. So they're going to come live down by me in Spring Lake an hour and 40 minutes from Manhattan, where a lot of those people, those more affluent people work and live. Um, when you when you saw the shift, okay, and by the way, congratulations, because you were, you were one of the early adopters is what I'm going to call that. Um, we did a very similar situation where we, we analyzed at the time I was still in real estate, we analyzed what market was still selling and what properties were they were properties were still trading at that time. Because at the time my, my average price point was $800,000 and that market went to a standstill because 20 million people were out of jobs. The people that were working though, and bought, by the way, there's a high concentration of them in the Irish Riviera of Spring Lake, which are retired policemen, firemen, nurses. And people that are school teachers, stuff like that. And what's funny is those people still had jobs. And they were not only did they have jobs, they were working overtime. So we shifted and found markets where people could buy a house for two or three hundred thousand because that's what that person's salary could afford them. So we did like markets like 30, 40 minutes away, which was Phillipsburg, New Jersey. Um, you actually went to Staten Island and tell me more about why Staten Island and what is the what is the connection between Staten Island and, and Spring Lake? Because you would Almost, if you know those two markets, you almost think like, oh my God, they're two completely different worlds. Yeah, and it wasn't necessarily Spring Lake specifically. I would say on a broader spectrum, it was Monmouth County as a whole. Monmouth mm -hmm. County as a whole had this huge concentration and influx of people coming from not only just Staten Island, but Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, of course. So what I was finding was people coming from Staten Island were typically trickling to Western Monmouth County, which if you're familiar with the area, we're talking about sort of Marlboro, Morganville. So more inland. Uh, a little bit more inland, yeah, exactly. And then the people in Manhattan were technically trickling down to Rumson, Fairhaven, Little Silver um, because of the high-speed ferry, which you mentioned earlier, which is an amazing asset to have because it's 40 minutes door to door. Um, so I think a lot of the draw there was that and the fact that what you were paying for in Manhattan could get you a much, much larger home and give you much more value in those other areas that I mentioned earlier. So that was a big plus. So let me just kind of touch on that for a second. You were, um, the people that you, when they, when you saw that transition, they were actually not as much coming to resort markets in the beach markets. They were coming more inland and going to Maine, you know, main, you know, uh, primary residences, if you will. 
Yeah, the Staten Island audience for sure was. I think a lot of people were trying to get off the island and try to find more space, so to speak, where they were able to find, you know, and it went further. I know you mentioned the Phillipsburg market. I did, uh, you know, probably about a year or so into the pandemic. I was selling a lot in Alexandria, Milford yep. Township up in Hunterdon County. So that was another big draw. And they would say, you know, that seems like a huge culture shock. But ultimately, I think that at the time is what people were looking for to get the more space, they, to get they wanted more that their difference. money. Yeah. Absolutely. They wanted to not be on top of their neighbors. Everyone was in the place where they were like, don't touch me. Don't talk to me. So, you know, doing that on five <laughs> acres. Near me. Right. Yeah. Doing that on five acres is certainly uh, more advantageous than doing it on top of your neighbor next door. Let me ask you this. The, uh, your average price point in people that are had homes in Staten Island. So I would say my average price point in Monmouth County is right around my average price point personally as an agent is right around 863. Okay. Um, and that's across the board from Monmouth Ocean, Middlesex, all the New Jersey markets. So we that skipped is- over your background before when we talked about in the green room. So unless those people weren't paying attention, his average price point average was 863 and 32 cents. That's because Andre, you were an analyst before you got into the real estate business. So tell us more about, let me, let me ask you a, a dopey question. Are you, are you the emotionally driven agent that helps people based on the touchy feely and the curtains and the, and and everybody in the neighborhood, or are you more the numbers person or both? I'm a chameleon. I'm whatever you need me to be. Um, Ultimately though, just generally speaking, my personality is much more analytical, but I am very empathetic. So it's a blend of two things, but I think it marries very well together. Mm -hmm. And ultimately having the ability to do both, I think is a necessity to be, you know, looked at as a professional in this industry, because listen, I mean, I could say all day, I would love to just tell people make, make decisions based off of just numbers and facts. And typically on the listing side, that's what I do. But on the buyer side, it's very challenging to get the emotional side out of it, especially in the market that we were seeing it for the three years of uh, pandemic time where people were going in and losing in on houses. And I mean, after you lose five houses at no fault of your own, other than the fact that you just can't compete, it obviously takes a toll on you emotionally as well. So I took on, you know, part-time therapist as one of my roles as well. Yeah. And that is, I think, just the run of the mill. And that's sort of just the, you know, part of the game. And I relish in that because I think a lot of people respect me for it. That I wasn't just some agent telling people to just to go in and bid on whatever you can, wave appraisal, wave inspection, because that's not in the best interest of you. And as my, you know, as an agent and as your fiduciary, I'm not going to tell you to do that because it's not going to benefit you in the long run. Right. Right. So it's interesting you say that because um, we just, I just had a conversation with a long, long, long-term friend of mine who was a mentor coach and a friend. He's going to be one of our other interviews, a guy named Jack Hamilton. Um, and Jack and I have known each other, like I said, 25 years. And interestingly enough, it, it came up today and I didn't really, as an agent, I knew it was an emotional decision when somebody would buy a home. And I would always prep my customer to say, oh my God, you know, when you're going to buy a home, you're going to wake up with a headache. You're going to wake up with a stomach ache. It's okay. It's normal. Right. What I didn't realize was that when I transitioned on to the mortgage side, it's even more so. I mean, like, cause now you're the numbers person, you're the financial person and you're the therapist from the financial seat, which is even more you know challenging because um, when they're, when they're coming to me nowadays, I'm, I'm like literally sending a text to both the buyer and the agent saying, you have a great team. Andre knows exactly what he's doing. He's there to hold your hand. You have a lifeguard. 
Our team of experts have done this before. You're in good hands. And, and in the same breath, I'm saying, by the way, if you weren't nervous and if you weren't, if you didn't have a stomach ache, we probably wouldn't sell you the house. And I had a woman say to me, well, why not? And I said, because if you're going to spend $800,000 and you don't wake up a little, like in a little bit of a cold sweat, there's something physically or mentally wrong with you. I mean, there's just, that just doesn't add up in the normal, in the, you know, it's getting married, getting divorced, public speaking, and then buying a house are the four most, uh, four most stressful things in the world. According to, like you said, the psychiatrist, let me ask you this, how often do, um, how often do buyers you're working with um, get into a transaction and then get the accepted offer and then all of a sudden to find out that, oh my God, we're in over our head? It happens. And I think a lot of that is talking people off the ledge because there is a strategy to it in the sense that people going into this typically aren't doing it every day. A lot of people are looking at you as a consummate professional to say, you know what you're doing. You've been doing this for a long time. You do it every day. So in the sense that, you know, ultimately you as a professional may not take it as emotionally as they would. Uh, you may be a bit desensitized to it. I know sometimes I get to a point where I am desensitized because I'm doing it so much. You know, during the pandemic, I was working with 20 yep. buyers at a time. So working with all those people, it's exhausting to give that empathy to every single person, but somehow we managed to do it. And I think ultimately there are those times where your buyer goes, wait, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I think we're over in over our head. We, we are bidding off more than we can chew. And a lot of times that's why it's so important to have a professional who you can trust, either an attorney or a mortgage lender or even a home appraiser or a home mm -hmm. inspector, yeah. um, because those people know their field. I don't know everything. I know the real estate. I don't know the finance. I make a very, very conscious effort to refer all financial questions to my lending partners because they know what they're doing. Sure. And I don't always know the answers. So as if they don't know the real estate answers. So for me, I feel as though it's very important to have that all-encompassing team, a good attorney, a good home inspector, a good mortgage lender. And as a team working with that buyer to help them understand that, listen, we understand you're frustrated. We understand that you're overwhelmed and you feel like you're over your head. But in the long term, you have a team of professionals telling you they know exactly what they're doing, working for your best interest, not for theirs. Um, and I think just working through that emotionally and sometimes being there as a shoulder to cry on is it's important and it's, it's actually warranted. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. Um, you know, as a professional, like I said, we sometimes do, do get desensitized from it and we look at it as, you know, we're helping people through it, but I never look at anything. I'm very relationship based. I'm not transactional. I never have been. I don't consider myself a salesperson, even though on paper I am. Um, but I don't look at it that way because I know that ultimately these are people I'm dealing with. This is a people brokering bitch business. And ultimately at the end of the day, these people are going to respect you more for telling them the truth and being transparent. And listen, sometimes it wasn't the right time for them to buy. And sure. I would tell them that yeah. it's not the right time for you to buy right now. It's too competitive. You can't compete. This is not the time for you to buy. But ultimately, if you have to buy something, you want to have a team there that you know can guide you through it and get you to the finish line. You know, I think um, you said that so eloqu eloquently. Um, as you're saying it, um, my sister lived in um, Freehold and, you know, she passed away at a very young age. But um, when she was going through cancer, what's interesting is I and I had never been I had older family members pass away from cancer. My mom was dealing with my father, my grandmother or whatever. 
but I never had firsthand experience in it. And then when I finally, um, when my sister became sick, she was four years older than me, I realized that it wasn't just one doctor. It was about seven different doctors and a team of experts that would meet once, once a week or once every other week and talk about my sister's situation and say, what is her prognosis? Where is she at? What is she doing? What are the numbers? Are her numbers going up or are her numbers going down? Is the market changed or, you know, and what's interesting is like, you know, me, me personally, I built a business on communication. Exactly what you're saying is keeping, you know, keeping calm in the, in the whole, you know, keep trying to be the piece, the person in the calm. And we still do it today in the mortgage space. I'll call you every Tuesday and say, here's what's going on with your buyer. Um, have you found the house for them? Okay, great. Did you find a house? Then if you find a house, we put you in another day or follow up every week, like green on a pickle, because we realize, you know, even though you and I both say, hey, you're going to be okay, sign the contract and you move forward and you get out of return review. It's a 90 day, it's a 90 day process or a, or a 30 to 60 day process. That's like running a marathon. You know, there's plenty of people that come out of the gate flying for the first 5k. And then all of a sudden they get to like mile 12 or they get to mile 20 and they hit the wall and they go, oh my God, I wasn't ready for this. How do you, um, how do you manage those emotions along the journey um, for the borrower to make sure that they are comfortable and confident in their decision. And is there something your team and you do differently, or do you have a strategy or do you have a, an actual, you sound, you remind me, you know, I don't mean this. I mean, this as a compliment. You remind me of a lot of people I know that are very detail oriented. I'm assuming you have a follow-up process that you deal on with your customers. What is that? Absolutely. Like? Yeah, absolutely. So our follow-up is, um, it's very systematic. So when I first got into the business, I started building systems quickly because I knew that was the best way to scale my business. And it was the best way to stay organized and detailed. And as an analyst, yes, I'm very sort of oriented in the sense that I have my systems in place in online or through spreadsheets or through just follow-up in general. So ultimately, follow-up consists of my Mondays are my buyer follow-up, my Wednesdays are my seller follow-up and then Fridays are mixed. So ultimately we go through the week. So Mondays I call back if we did any showings or open houses um, with buyers. So I went out with them and I saw some stuff. I give them a weekend to think about it. And then I call them Monday morning. So it's fresh in their mind and say, I know we saw all this. I know it was overwhelming, but did you have a time to sort of digest it? And did you go through and see what was kind of going on? And ultimately once they get under contract, that follow-up anticipated is uh, anticipated on Mondays, but also maybe Wednesdays. And maybe we follow up a little bit more than we would say when we were just in that showing phase, because there's more nuances, there's more um, cogs in the machine, right. if you will. So I think that the biggest- well, we're, By the way, we're talking about once that person, I mean, I'm assuming you're back and forth by text, phone, call, smoke signals, when you're negotiating a deal on a multiple offer situation, but- well, really what we're referring to once we've kind of got the dust to settle and we got the agreed price from that point forward, this is that, that's your process. Um, and, in dealing with the buyers and dealing with these sellers. Um, what do you think is the most, what do you think is the most stressful thing that you can actually help make it not so stressful um, for what have you learned? Like what's like, what's one thing that you've gotten that you do better than most agents at managing the process? Well, from a buyer perspective, I think inspections get pretty um, 
daunting for a lot of people because they'll mm-hmm. go into a house, they'll put an offer, especially if it's a multiple offer situation and they didn't really have the time. They liked the house, but they didn't have time to really do a quick walkthrough. I mean, you know, your walkthroughs back then and even now are about 15, 30 minutes, maybe max. And you kind of don't have the ability to see all the different things and specifics in that house in that time frame. So you may want to go back through it again. <laughs> you may want to point something out. Yeah. I recently bought my kid a car for 20 grand. That process was easily three hours, three and a half hours. And I want to go back to what you just said. The walkthrough when we're going to go make an offer on 800 to a million dollar house was how long? I mean, it could be anywhere from 15, 30 minutes. 30 minutes know, on I the mean, top side, right? Yeah. Right. Maybe, maybe if you look 45. in the indoor drawer, 45 minutes. I mean, right. <laughs> you know, right. Right. So, so that, you know, when you, it's, it's no wonder that, like when you said earlier, that the therapist's uh, role has become more and more important because, you know, the, the amount of, the, you know, the, when you're creating a sense of urgency, which is not you doing it, it's the market doing it. And, and, you know, just to clarify for some people out there, our normal real estate market, and, and I don't even know if Andre knows this because it's, you know, it, we, he's not been in that market yet. Um, and hopefully, God, hope to God you never have to be in some of the markets that we went through. But um, the average real estate market is a six and a half million dollar, uh, six and a half million homes get sold throughout the United States. Um, in this year, we're anticipating 4.35 um, homes in the United States to sell. That's almost a 30% off, off 30 of the first 35% is what they're anticipating the amount of inventory to come down, which is that means that. We only have 65% of the normal inventory that's in the market, but we still have the same amount of demand. So it's no wonder like that the urgency is so high. How do you balance that emotional factor for, you know, it used to be like when somebody would come in and go, you know, I'm really not there yet. So you really don't have to say that anymore. You could just say, okay, that's, that's not the market anymore. You either have to make a decision, poop or get off the pot. How, how do you do that? very eloquently without saying, Hey, you got to poop or get off the pot or do you? It depends on the client too. Um, it also depends on how well you know them. And that's why I say building relationships with a parent. And it's also very important to not be transactional because this is a transaction that's going to go at least, you know, from the showing process to the closing table, you're looking at a four or five, maybe six month time frame, depending on the circumstances of what you're looking at. So ultimately that's a long time to get to know someone. And in such a large purchase, you have to be able to trust that person is being transparent and honest with you. So for me, I got to a point where if I was showing a home and say they had lost a home or even, you know, two homes potentially because they weren't strong enough. And I can only say what I can say as far as advice goes to give you the strongest offer. Of course, I'm going to fight for you to do that. But when you're up against 20 offers and you're not willing to compete, it's going to hurt a little bit. It's going to sting. And unfortunately, sometimes that's the wake up call people need in order to understand that they do have to be competitive in this market and you don't have the luxury of waiting around. So there were times where someone would say, I really, really love this house, but, you know, the price is a little high and I'm saying, well, it's going to go higher. And unfortunately, (laughs) you know, that's that's the opening bid. (laughs) You know, and that's kind of how it was. And it was really an auction at that point in time. And a lot of times you would go into this house and you would know in your head, me systematically, just looking at the house from the market specifics and the standpoint of uh, analytics of what I was looking at at similar homes, 
but this house is going to go much higher. This right. is priced very right. aggressively. And if you're interested, this is where we need to be to be. And not only the price, but the terms we need, you know, to give the seller the ability, maybe for use and occupancy, we need to be able to do structural informational inspections only. We need to have an appraisal gap in place if they were financially able to do so. And, um, you know, I think you it's guys funny. use uh, escalation clauses. I did. Um, I do. I still do. And, you know, a lot of people are sort of here and there about that. Um, people say, you know, ultimately it's not fair because you're getting a leg up. But, you know, at the same time, it's it a contractual it, agreement. It, is. it yeah. is. And you know what? I understand it from a seller's perspective because I have gone through it where I had a listing that had, you know, 29 offers on it. And ultimately, we went through all these offers and we thought we had the highest and we looked through the additional contact contractual provisions and there's an escalation clause for 10 grand in there so ultimately five grand in there and then ultimately you have to reevaluate okay well what's the actual highest offer now is this the best one is this sure. you know so so it makes it challenging for the listing agent for the seller but from a perspective of the buyer it gives you the ability to not maybe if you feel you're on the fence and you're like i don't necessarily want to go that high if i don't have to but i will if it means i have to if i get the house then that's a good option to have. It's not right for every house and it's not right for every buyer. And I think that's the biggest thing is it's all circumstantial in terms of the buyers and why they're, where they're comfortable. Not every buyer is going to be able to do a gap. Not every buyer is going to be able to do an appraisal waiver. Not every buyer is going to be comfortable doing an informational inspection only uh, inspection if they have a house that potentially may need some work or may have some issues structurally or something of that nature. Um, but you had different thought. tools. Would you um, like, I'll give you a great example of this. There's a house in, in your backyard, actually, in uh, Monmouth Beach. And we just, I just work with an agent on structuring an offer where the, the house they were going to make an offer on was 175000 more. And quite honestly, the agent was not being very cooperative. They were making it very challenging. Um, and to the point where it was almost, it was almost uh, counterproductive and <clears throat> the we ended up finding he found another house at 750 but it needed 150,000 worth of work and i said not a problem this is you know we actually have a product where we can do an echo we can do an acquisition plus $100,000 in renovation cost in one loan with 10% down as long as the buyer qualifies and and that made you know that made a huge difference in the way that that, that got presented um Adrian, I think we got your frozen. Um, I'm going to yeah. hold on one second. Let's see if that did that free you up. No, I don't think so. Hold on a second. You just your your camera disappeared. So let's just see. And I could edit this part. It's no big deal. Up oh, oh, there you go. Yeah. Okay, there you cool. Go. Yeah. So. You know, and and that being said, I mean, we were able to. You know, the buyer was able to go look at a house that maybe wasn't like all that and more from the surface, but they saw the potential in it. Um, and I think the agent, you know, between the agent and what we, the product that we gave them and offered them options and the agent was smart enough to say, Hey, Sean, I know you guys have this option. Can we do this on this house? And we were able to do it. Um, so I think it, you know, it goes back to trusting in the knowledge of the agent that you're working with, which would be Andre and his team. Um, and knowing that, not every, you know, not every, not every round hole gets a round peg. Um, you know, right. sometimes, sometimes it's, you know, it's a different peg that goes in the hole um, and makes it fit. Um, let me ask you, what is the, so 
I know we've kind of run a little long, but I wanted, you know, I think it's, it's intriguing though, because, you know, when you're talking about, um, you know, really what you're talking about is positioning your buyer, depending on the situation and, and, and kind of dialing it in and tailoring that situation for each one of those, each one of the situations, which is great. And you used the great word before, which is the word chameleon. Um, probably one of my best sales coaches was a guy named Mike Ferry, who's been around forever said, Hey, the more you can become a chameleon, the more people you'll actually help because mm -hmm. the more people want to communicate with you because people do business with the people like themselves. Absolutely. Um, what is, uh, I always ask the same question. If you had to start your business over again, we took everything away from you, gave you $500, gave you a laptop and a phone. What would be the first thing you'd do or how would you invest your money to go start your business over? I think the biggest way that I've built my business and how I would do it again, I think it's the only way to do it is by building relationships. Okay. When I first got started in the pandemic, I had no option other than to talk to people um, and meet people. And obviously the challenge there was not meeting in person. It was all via phone or Zoom or what have you. But um, the ability for social media was huge. Um, the ability to get on there and kind of join all those community groups in my area and sort of introduce myself as a new agent. Um, I think the other big thing I've done was direct mail. So mm -hmm. being able to, what I did when I first started was I sent out a mailer to my entire neighborhood, my parents' neighborhood where I grew up, um, family and friends' neighborhoods, anywhere where anyone might know me and said, hey, by the way, now an agent. Um, so all these people, you know, started kind of reaching out and either, you know, not necessarily with direct needs, but maybe they had a friend who was selling or they had a friend who needed to buy something. And uh, that's kind of how I got started and how I built my sphere over that course of a short period of time. And so I think that's exactly how I do it again. If I had the luxury of meeting in person with people, of course, I would be able to, uh, you know, hold events, community outreach events, which I'm very involved in the community here. I live in Asbury, so Asbury Park is a big um, well, what, uh, what events are you actually active in? Are you active? Well, wait a minute. Are you active in the in the cardboard Christmas tree? Because we're really not. My wife and I are not fans of the cardboard Christmas tree. I got to just tell you. <laughs> I, I had no involvement in that, so I can't. I yeah. can't hold myself liable for that. But all uh, right, we'll let you know. off the hook. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in the summer specifically, I mean, it's such an opportunity to have the very nice weather and some amazing places right near the beach and near parks and different mm -hmm. facilities that have such an aesthetic that you're able to hold you know, whether it's a community event of just a booth kind of talking about real estate, whether it's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm involved with uh, Jersey Pride. So yep. with uh, Jersey Pride in June, I'll have a booth there. So, you know, that'll be a great opportunity as well. Belmar Seafood Festival. By the way, when, um, is, uh, when is Jersey Pride uh, this year? Do you Jersey know Pride is June 4th. June 4th. Is, uh, is my friend Arthur Pravliska still involved with Jersey Pride? I don't know, actually. I used to be on the board of directors for a long, okay. long time. Okay. Yeah, I think I know the name, so he may be, but uh, I've been so corresponding with two I'm gonna, people. I'm going to throw something in there for a second. Talk about, a, you know, a creativity. I met Arthur Pavlisko with his uh, partner at one point in the gym in a steam room in a towel. Hey, Sean, yep. one second. I, someone's been calling me like three times. I just, I don't know what this is about. We could edit it, so if we need to. Yeah. All right. Hang on one second. Like this person has called me three times and I sent them a message that I can't enter right now. So <laughs> I'm just, I'm confused as to what that's about. Um, can I take a quick pause and just take this call? Yeah, sure, sure, sure. 
Okay, awesome. I'll be right. Okay, all right, all good. So I just remembered that Arthur actually, believe it or not, you're going to laugh about this. So I meet Arthur. I meet Arthur and his partner in the steam room in the towel, and he says, um, "We're interested in buying a house, but because we're same-sex marriage friends, at the time there was no, you know, they weren't married, physically married. And it was kind of a challenging time in that. And this was, I'm talking like probably 20 years ago." And we lived in the town of Hoboken, which was, I call it, I call it Asbury Park North, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I said to the, I said, he goes, you know, we just can't buy a house because God forbid something happens to one of us. And I said, so let me ask you a question. Neither one of you have kids, right? Nope. You guys have enough money for a 25, 25% down deposit? Yep. Okay, good. I said, come to my office. Be, I'll be in my office in an hour. Come to my office. I'll show you how to buy a house. And they're like, oh, that's impossible. We've talked to all these agents. I said, nothing is impossible. So we sit down and I take out a whiteboard and I go, okay, we're going to create Tom and Arthur, Tom and Arthur LLC. You're going to be business partners. And what we're going to do is have an operating agreement between Arthur and Tom and God forbid Arthur passes away. Tom's going to be able to buy the stock in the company for a dollar and get hundred percent of the stock. And that way, if he passes away, there isn't there number one, he doesn't pay a 40% uh, gift tax because if they're not married, it becomes a gift from one person to the other. And then the other thing that's even more important, which was happening, and I didn't never realize that as the heterosexual guy, God forbid one of them one of them passed away, the family, not acknowledging their relationship, would try to go after the house and take the money, and take that take that investment, you know. And I said, I said, well, what if we can kind of get rid of all that, and we could just do it all legally? And he go, and they go, you can do that. So I ended up. This is in Hoboken twenty years ago. I set up the first real um, same sex. Uh, married, not married, you know, transaction. We put it all together. And I still, I'll never forget it. We go to the closing table, Arthur, who, who ran the, um, the Jersey um, gay men's and women's, uh, you know, uh, LGBT plus association in Asbury Park for, for years um, said to me, he goes, we're going to have the biggest party ever. And, and by the way, I sold him a, I sold him a 700 square foot, like studio or something. Right. Mm -hmm. I show up, there's 60 people, there's 60 people in this apartment. And all that, all I kept on happening was they were come up to me and they go, are you that guy? And I'm going, yeah, they're going, okay, great. I want to buy a house. Are you that guy? That's great. Me and my wife want to buy a house. And I was like, okay, so we did for about 10 years, every quarter, I would do um, the same sex marriage um, purchasing of home. And I had an attorney that would set up the LLCs. I had a mortgage company that was doing 20% down, no, no, no PMI insurance, whatever. And they had another company that was um, setting up the operating agreement and the will and the trust so that God forbid something happened to one of the partners or the other. And, and by the way, the whole way through it, we probably, I think at one point we had figured it out. We donated something like $60,000 to back into the gay men's and women's association for, you know, different, different, because every time we would do an event, we would, you know, we'd make it, we would get somebody to sponsor it and then raise the money and then donate the money back into the association. So it's, um, it's funny how um, opportunities arise from sometimes what your challenges and stuff like that. And, and Asbury Park, by the way, is a huge, huge story of that. I don't know if you even know this, but Asbury Park, when I was a kid, um, where what is now the, um, God, uh, it's the convention center, which is the casino. Um, at that point, I, when, I, when I was a kid, I was in a skateboard contest in there in the, in the 70s. And that town went broke. The entire right. the, the entire town went bankrupt. And now 
there's a, an entire regentrification of Asbury Park. The average price, my brother paid like, I think he paid 250 just off of Bond Street or something. It's now worth about 600. And that was probably seven or eight years ago. Um, wow. And so, I mean, it, it, you know, there's a definitely a different vibe. Um, it used to be, you didn't want to go past uh, Route 71. Now, all of a sudden, you know, over on 71, you're going to get a better opportunity in some cases. There's businesses yeah. going into Main Street. What do you think, you know, and I don't want to get too distracted, but what do you attribute the gentrification of Asbury Park? Like where, where's the next hotspot to go invest in in that area? If you had, so, a, if you had to pick one. Yeah, I mean, I can do a whole a whole episode on this alone, and I have actually. Um, but ultimately, there's four quadrants of Asbury Park. There's northeast, yep. northwest, southwest, and southeast. Uh, northeast and northwest. I'm actually in the northwest section or northeast section rather. Um, and ultimately, I think that area sort of seen its. I would say it's kind of plateaued in the sense of value goes. Yep. Southeast is sort of similar in that sense. Northwest is getting there, that area that borders sort of Interlake and, and Wanamassa and that area there. Right. The Southwest is a great opportunity right now. Um, that area bordering Neptune Township. Is I was going to say, that's, that's like Neptune. Uh, how, yeah. What are the other towns over there? I can't even think. Um, um, Neptune, Neptune City. Um, you have Bradley Beach. You have yeah. uh, some parts of Wall even for Wall, Shark River yeah. Hills as part of that. Um, that area right now has uh, amazing, amazing opportunities in terms of buying as an investment property and renting it out. The nice thing about it is the rents here are so, so attributed to, I think, just the fact that seasonal rentals are so expensive and like so lucrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, finding an annual rental is next to nearly impossible. So, let's, so put that, let's put that in perspective for somebody who doesn't live in our area, who lives in California, let's say. You're talking about a small beach town in Jersey where, like we said, it, it went bankrupt. It has a very, um, it's got a funny, like a funny vibe to it. It depends on which side of the, which side of the, which side of the, uh, the boardwalk you're on. There's like the man's side and the women's side. And then there's the in-between. And, and then like there's yappy hour, which like we get down with my brother. We go down and visit my brother with my dog and take my dog to yappy hour, which is pretty much the happy hour um, down next to the stone pony, which is an art, you know, obviously. The, uh, yeah, the wonder bar. The Wonder Bar, right? Yeah, Wonder Bar. So, um, that being said, um, Andre, you've been a, I mean, you've been a great guest. You've been a really gracious host. I mean, you know, and, and as far as all the information you're sharing, somebody wants to invest in Asbury Park or they want to learn more about, um, you know, going from Staten Island and down south or, or down south back up to Staten Island because they're, they're family or whatever. How do they get in touch with you? Um, I'm big on Instagram. So, my Instagram okay. handle is at Andre Sells NJ. Um, you could reach me at Facebook at Andre Leonardo DiStefano. Uh, okay. You can email me, Andre DiStefano at kw.com, or you know, reach out to me on my phone, 908-489-9754. And uh, I'm always happy to answer any questions, talk to anyone, whether it's about you know, Asbury Park, whether it's about New Jersey, New York, um, anything in regard to that. I'm, I'm always happy to have a great conversation with someone. And at the, so, the, event, the, the event that you mentioned, you're going to have a booth there, is that right? I will. Yeah. Jersey Pride, June 4th. Uh, we'll have a booth. So come visit there. I think we'll have some. I good, wonder uh, if um, you might even know him. Uh, somebody used to be on my team was a guy named Michael Cruz, who is the DJ over at pa- uh, at, pa- uh, at the club. Um, God. Paradise. Yeah. Paradise Club. So Michael worked yeah. for me for two years in my, in my, on my team. Oh, that's so funny. And he's like a world-class DJ. I wouldn't be surprised if he's playing down there at the Paradise during that. Uh, during Probably. That yeah um yeah, great event cool. to go to it's always a fun time and obviously it goes for a great cause um 
definitely get down and support Asbury Park, New Jersey. Um, Andre, you know, we're going to, we're going to put your information here. We're going to tell people all about you, tell the world that, Hey, you're the coolest guy out there. Um, we do appreciate your time, sir. And I look yeah. forward to talking to you. By the Absolutely. way, let me just leave this is, um, again, our, this episode is sponsored by us bank. We're the, um, Jimmy Stewart bank. We're probably one of the more conservative banks out there with everything going on in the banking industry. Um, also we're, you know, we help people. We're, we're the home mortgage company. We're not, we work with investors, but we're predominantly helping Mary and Bobby Sue or Tommy or Tommy, whoever, um, buy their first home or buy their second home. Um, and if you know anybody that needs our help, please get in touch with us. If you have any questions about this episode or any other episode, we look forward to talking with you and Andre, you've been a pleasure. We'll see you on the other side, sir. Thank you so much. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. Have Bye, a great man. day. Take care. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the Top Pros Podcast. If you want to find out more about Sean Chalice and what we do for people and how we can help you, please go to seanchalice.com. Again, that's seanchalice.com. Book a free call. We'll have a conversation belly to belly, and we'll see how we can help. Thanks for listening. See you on the other side.